Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Dewey & LaBeouf was one of the world's great law firms. With more than 1,300 attorneys and a support staff of thousands more, Dewey operated out of two dozen offices across the globe and generated revenues of more than $900 million a year. In May of this year, it filed for bankruptcy. Dewey's filing is the largest in a string of recent major law firm bankruptcies. Following Washington, D.C.-based Howery in 2011 and the 2008 filings by California-based Heller Ehrman and Thielen, more than 30 large law firms have filed since Finley Cumble became the first major firm to file in 1988. Law firms have seen a decline in the demand for legal services since the financial crisis hit. Their large clients, also buffeted by the global economic downturn, are squeezing legal expenses. As with any bankruptcy, there are also contributing factors such as overexpansion, flawed management decisions, and excessive costs as root causes. At law firms, people are the most valuable asset. And when a firm files for bankruptcy, things get personal, with ex-partners fighting among themselves and a bankruptcy trustee looking to maximize returns to creditors through clawback suits and unfinished business claims, a regular litigation palooza. With me today to discuss the fallout from major law firm bankruptcies are two ABI members experienced in these issues. Dylan Trachy is a partner in the Wiley Ryan LLP office in McLean, Virginia. He was on the team representing Howery in their law firm bankruptcy in the Northern District of California. Paul Haig is in the Southfield, Michigan office of Jaffe Rate. He recently co-authored the cover story in the August issue of the ABI Journal on new case developments in law firm bankruptcies. Welcome, Dylan and Paul, to ABI Podcasts. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. So the recent string of law firm bankruptcies has spawned a new kind of litigation. When firms dissolve and enter bankruptcy, their former partners sometimes carry the dissolved firm's unfinished business and the profits from it to their new firms. The trustee or debtor in possession of a dissolved firm will often sue to recover those departed profits. Trustees are also targeting the destination law firms to which the former partners have moved, and they've enjoyed some success thanks in part to a California state court opinion from 1984 called Jewel v. Boxer. So first, Paul, what does Jewel stand for and why has a mere state court decision had such national reach? Well, Sam, uh, uh, that's a good question. Um, It's really incredible uh, that the genesis of this unfinished business doctrine that uh, is now being applied to some of the largest law firms uh, in the world uh, has very humble origins. Um, Jewel v. Boxer is a 1984 opinion by the California Court of Appeals uh, and it involved uh, litigation revol- regarding a uh, dissolved four-partner personal injury and workers' compensation firm. Uh, of the four partners, two split off, uh, and the firm dissolved. Uh, 
the two partners who split off uh, were sued by the other two partners uh, who brought an action for an accounting on a contingency matter that had uh, been uh, started prior to the dissolution of the law firm. Uh, in the Court of Appeals in California, they they uh, they looked at the issue uh, and noted that there was no written partnership agreement in place between uh, the partners of that law firm, and therefore uh, applied the default rules of the Uniform Partnership Act to determine what the partners, the former partners' responsibilities were to each other. Uh, and this is the genesis of the unfitness business doctrine. Uh, the court uh, noted that. Uh, this doctrine is rooted in sort of very basic concepts of partnership law, uh, that being that an association of two or more persons carrying on as co-owners of a business for profit creates a partnership, that partners share profits and losses, uh, and that no uh, partner is entitled to additional compensation for partnership business. Uh, finally, the court noted that partners owe fiduciary duties to each other, including the duty to account for any benefit a partner derives, from the use of partnership property, and that these duties continue and become a continuing obligation even after the dissolution of the firm while it is winding up. Uh, in the case of Jewel v. Boxer, uh, the court found that former partners have a duty to account to the dissolved firm and each other for profits earned after payment of overhead expenses from the dissolved firm's unfinished business. And the primary rationale for this that the court uh, looked at was that uh, not only is this Pretty clearly set forth in the in the language of the Uniform Partnership Act, but that there's a there's a benefit to it in that it, it prevents partners uh, from competing with each other, uh, from trying to take p physical possession of files, and from seeking personal gain by soliciting firms existing clients upon dis dissolution. So, uh, Jewel v. Boxer, the the California Court of Appeals uh, found that uh, that this is a you know that this is not as complex an issue as, as, as one would think, that this is just part of being partners uh, or former partners of a dissolved law firm. And uh, nevertheless, there's a very simple way around the unfinished business doctrine, and that is the provisions, the default provisions of the Uniform uh, Partnership Act only govern uh, absent agreement amongst partners to the contrary, and they're free to contract otherwise in their operating or, or partnership agreements. Uh, and so um, what the court suggested is that if partners didn't want to be subject to the unfinished business doctrine uh, after, upon the dissolution of the firm, uh, they could contract otherwise. And this, this concept of contracting other, otherwise became known as a jewel wave or something. I know we're going to talk about more here coming up. Okay, Dylan. So let's, let's uh, get into that question. What is a, a, a jewel waiver and... Can it be effective against uh, so-called Jewel v. Boxer claims? Okay, Sam. Well, a Jewel waiver is simply an amendment or uh, it could actually be in the original partnership agreement uh, that in some ways modifies the rights that the partners would have as against one another uh, under Jewel v. Boxer. So a Jewel waiver could take the form of uh, a partial waiver, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the, the partners uh, waive the rights uh, to hourly uh, unfinished business, for instance. It could be a, a more thorough waiver with a, a perhaps a formula for contingency fee work. Um, so it could take many forms. And uh, what we've seen, however, is that um, 
in some of the recent law firm bankruptcies, these these jewel waivers are executed uh, shortly before the bankruptcy is filing, and that's where uh, we've run into some problems because courts have uh, determined that jewel waivers constitute fraudulent transfers under Section 548 of the Bankruptcy Code. Um, and so in order for a jewel waiver to be effective, one would have to convince the court, uh, I think, one of three basic things. One, uh, that the firm was solvent when they uh, executed the jewel waiver. Uh, two, uh, that the uh, it could be effective if the partners were, were to give some reasonably equivalent value in return for the jewel waiver. And three, um, some uh, defendant firms have argued that uh, the execution of, of a jewel waiver does not constitute a transfer of property because the uh, unfinished business does not belong to the law firm, it belongs to the client. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that has not been... Uh, successful in most of the cases thus far. So since we uh, know that there is a danger of executing such a waiver when a firm is in trouble, should uh, healthy firms execute dual waivers? And what language, uh, if any, uh, do we think might be successful? Yeah, well, Sam, on this is Paul. I, I think that for it to work, uh, for it to accomplish its desired goal, it, it has to be done by a firm when they're healthy. Uh, unless you, you know, you, there, are, there are arguments, of course, that can be raised on the, on the uh, fraudulent uh, uh, transfer defenses and whether or not it truly is a fraudulent transfer to add this in while the firm is insolvent. But uh, to avoid that, I think the best practice is to add this language in um, uh, while the firm is, is healthy. Uh, in two cases, uh, in the Brobeck, Flager, and Harrison case, and also in the Thielen case, uh, the courts, uh, in their opinions, uh, addressed the specific dual waiver language that had been added. In both cases, that language was added while the firm was insolvent. But in Brobeck, at least, the court said that the language was effective. Uh, it, it just, you know, was was done at a time when when the addition of that language is a fraudulent transfer. Here's the language that they used. Uh, quote, neither the partners nor the partnership shall have any claim or entitlement to clients, cases or matters ongoing at the time of the dissolution of the partnership, other than the entitlement for collections of amounts due for work performed by the partners and other partnership personnel on behalf of the partnership prior to the departure from the partnership. The provisions of this section are intended to expressly waive, opt out of, and be in lieu of any right any partners or the partnership may have to, quote, unfinished business of the partnership, as that term is defined in Jewel v. Boxer, or as otherwise might be provided in the absence of this provision through interpretation or application of the California Revised Uniform Partnership Act. So that's the language that at least one court has said it works so long as you're you're not adding it uh, at a time when it's insolvent for no consideration, there, therefore being a, a constructive fraudulent transfer. Okay. Thank you. Now, um there are some recent case developments uh, that set up a bit of a conflict. Um, they both arise from the same court, the Southern District of New York, um, and perhaps uh, set up a resolution by the, the Second Circuit at, at some point. Um, can you uh, folks discuss these two cases and, and why they're significant and what the, and what the issue is? Uh, likely teed up for the uh, Second Circuit? 
Paul? Sure, Sam. Well, I'll go first uh, talking about Kudera if we'll go in, in chronological order here. Uh, the, the Kudera opinion came out by, by Judge McMahon uh, earlier this summer. Uh, previously, uh, Judge Drain had, had uh, opined on this issue uh, in the underlying uh, bankruptcy case, but um, ultimately, because of a, a Stern v. Marshall uh, argument, uh, this matter got before uh, Judge McMahon at the district court, and for the first time, she adopted Jewelby Waiver, uh, but for the first time in New York, at least, really uh, expanded on the scope of the unfinished business doctrine to include not just the contingency-type matters that Jewelby Boxer and a handful of other cases had found were subject to the unfinished business doctrine, uh, but expanded it to include also um, uh, hourly fee matters um, uh, under New York law. Uh, in that case, um, what the court held was that the um, that profits made by former partners of a dissolved law firm or at the new firms can be clawed back for the benefit of the dissolved law firm's bankruptcy estate. Uh, she viewed this really as an accounting uh, action and, and uh, declined to to find that other types of claims brought by the plan administrator, turnover actions or or unjust enrichment actions, were applied. But but rather, this was a fairly simple accounting action based on application of the Uniform Partnership Act, which, which is adopted in New York. Um, she noted that uh, in Couder, uh, the firm did not have any jewel waiver or language uh, that uh, opted out of uh, the unfinished business doctrine and, and really was sort of uh, unsympathetic for sophisticated Couder partners who, who failed to include this language in, uh, in the opinion. Uh, there's a there's a great quote where she summarized the analysis and she said a departing departing partner is not free to walk out of his firm's office carrying a Jackson Pollock painting he ripped off the wall of the reception area <laughs> simply because because the firm has dissolved partnership property remains partnership property dissolution notwithstanding and a former partner of the dissolved firm must account for any benefit he derives from his use of a partnership asset even if he is not among the winding up partners charged with winding up the firm's affairs, end quote. So clearly what Judge McMahon views this as is a situation where the attorney-client uh, matter, the unfinished business, uh, is, a part, is a partnership asset and, and, and in bankruptcy becomes property of the estate. Uh, that's, the, that's the conclusion that she came to, uh, and as Dylan's going to explain, there's, there's, there's room to, to disagree about that. Right, uh, Dylan, the opinion by, uh, later opinion by Judge Pauly, also from the same court. Can you talk about that? Uh, that's right. Th this is the, the Thalen bankruptcy, and uh, there's, there's a trustee, a Chapter 7 trustee in place in that uh, bankruptcy case. Uh, the same basic uh, issues were at play, although the, the Thalen case began with an interesting sort of choice of law issue that, that can be relevant to the defense of these claims. Uh, the, the Thalen Partnership Agreement apparently had language uh, that uh, stated California law was to govern uh, the partnership agreement than any disputes arising under it. Um, one of the firms argued that, well, notwithstanding the provision of, of that partnership agreement, uh, this defendant firm was not uh, a party to that agreement and that New York's choice of law uh, provision should apply. And Judge Polly actually agreed with that. And, and that's important because what the uh, bankruptcy and district courts are actually doing uh, when they get these cases are, are attempting to predict how the uh, highest 
court of whatever state is applicable will rule on the particular issue, in this case, whether uh, the unfinished business uh, doctrine would apply to hourly cases. And in determining uh, that issue, Judge Pauly said that uh, it would not, uh, New York's Court of Appeals would not uh, expand the Jewell doctrine, because remember, Jewell was uh, actually a contingency fee case, to uh, the hourly uh, rate unfinished business. Uh, he did cite a New York uh, Supreme Court, which uh, is, is the lowest level oh, of, right. of court in New York, uh, that, that did hold uh, that, that the unfinished business was uh, doctrine did not apply to hourly cases. And, um, you know, she noted or noted some um, uh, important distinctions between those uh, hourly fees and the contingency fee cases. Um, you know, mostly that all of the work that's done on the hourly fee cases is done by the uh, lawyers at the new firm. Uh, Judge Polly also raised uh, concerns about the uh, ethical uh, rules and and how the uh, how impl- importing uh, Jewel v. Boxer to hourly fee matters could uh, hinder uh, the client representation uh, and uh, the relationship between the attorney and client. Uh, and so, for all those reasons, Judge Polly found that the the doctrine would not uh, apply uh, under New York law. And so we have a, a split in authority now uh, amongst the district court. Uh, Judge Polly certified the uh, the matter for immediate appeal to the Court of Appeals, and uh, I imagine we, we will have a decision sometime from the Court of Appeals. I, I suppose it's possible they may certify the issue to the uh, uh, New York Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. And the New York Court of Appeals is, of course, the highest state court in New York, and so, right, and so, um, because in California we don't we don't have a California Supreme Court opinion. Joel v. Boxer is is a lower court opinion. That's right, and, and in fact, some of the uh, defendants in the uh, these cases uh, arising out of the Heller case and uh, some others are are making the argument that well. Uh, you know, Jewell shouldn't apply because uh, the the California Supreme Court would rule otherwise. Now, Judge Montali, I believe, has a different view and uh, has has already ruled the other way. But I think they're they're preserving that argument. Okay. Well, no matter what level, uh, Jewell v. Boxer has been pretty durable so far. So, so let's move on, um, Dylan, and and ask um, or address how does a law firm defend against Jewel claims. You've uh, you've hired a a big name uh, lateral partner from a failing firm, um, and uh, you, you face a trustee or or someone else asserting these unfinished business claims. What does the what does the new law firm to do to defend themselves? Well, the first thing they do is uh, determine whether there's, there's been a decision in in, in the applicable jurisdiction. Um, you know, if, if the case is uh, in New York, uh, you know you have these two uh, divergent views on on hourly rates versus uh, uh, versus contingency. Uh, but if if the the case is elsewhere, uh, I think you have to make the argument that that Jewel doesn't apply to hourly cases, uh, and perhaps uh, 
doesn't apply at all. I suppose you could make that argument if, if you're just in a jurisdiction where none of this has been decided. Um, but assuming the doctrine is going to apply and is going to apply to both uh, contingency fee and hourly cases, uh, you you can do two things. One is you can move to withdraw the reference and, and see if you can get the case decided by the district court. Uh, these are, uh, for the most part, uh, state court claims, mm-hmm. so that that may be an option. It doesn't get you out of the case, but uh, it may be desirable for some firms. But uh, the thing about Jewel v. Boxer and unfinished business is uh, the entitlement is to the, the profits of the unfinished business. So, uh, you know, the, the most basic way to defend against the case is to uh, establish that there were little or no profits derived from uh, this work that was brought over. And uh, it to some extent matters whether your uh, state is a, a uniform partnership act or a revised uniform partnership act case, uh, state because under the old uh, partnership act uh, you're, you're not supposed to receive any compensation whereas under the revised uniform partnership act uh, the departing partner is entitled to reasonable compensation so compensation for their post-dissolution efforts skill and diligence that's the uh that's the, that's the phrase that they continue to use. Uh, but I think in, in determining uh, damages in these cases, the, the key is, well, what is that reasonable compensation? And more critically, what constitutes costs uh, or overhead that are right. allowed to be deducted from any uh, f- fee receipts? Uh, you, you have arguments about you know, your normal overhead, uh, you know, whether it's rent or employee expenses, um, but uh, you know, to what extent is the partner salary deductible as um, as a, a cost, or mm-hmm. to what extent are, are the associates working on the case uh, compensate, uh, uh, deductible as a cost? So, uh, you know, firms are going to be reluctant, of course, to share right. what their overhead models are. But uh, that that's going to be the the damages defense. Right. Well, and I, I, I think that the the argument that was raised in the in the Thielen case, and I, I know you've touched on it, is uh, is a pretty good one too. Uh, and I think even the Cudair court gave some consideration to this, being, being the ethical argument, uh, in that you know, uh, it, it's it's not appropriate to characterize the attorney-client relationships as a as a property interest of the firm. It's not a Jackson Pollock, but rather the client determines that controls the relationship. The client decides to move the matter to the new firm. Um, it's not an asset that can be sold by the bankruptcy estate. Uh, I, I think that's a that's a really um, that's a really important point that that Thielen sort of uh, shined uh, shed some light on here. And uh, I'm sure that other firms who are who are sued on these things uh, and other uh, partners, uh, including perhaps in in Dewey, if we get there. Are really going to be trying to adopt the arguments that, uh, or the the analysis of Thielen, and get the court to uh, uh, to agree that uh, uh, to consider these matters a firm asset is is really not consistent with how an attorney-client relationship is supposed to work. Yeah, I think that's right. And and the other issue that has sort of only been addressed on uh, on the outside is, you know. Some unfinished business is more desirable than others. If you start looking at the ethical issues, uh, you know attorneys may start picking and choosing which cases they're actually going to take over to 
the new firm. And, uh, you know, in that case, the old firm might end up with some client abandonment claims. Okay. So you, you've talked about how um, uh, this is uh, largely arising out of state law, uh, partnership law, and, and the like. When you're in defense mode uh, from a Jewel v. Boxer claim, are there any legal defenses that might be grounded in the bankruptcy code? Well, I, I don't think that there really are. Um, it, is, uh, it is really more in the nature of a state law claim. It has been pled in some of these cases as being a, a sort of a constructive fraudulent transfer uh, type argument, although I think most courts have re- rejected that argument. It's more in the nature of, a, of an accounting or a turnover type action uh, under state law. If you could get it to be a Chapter 5, uh, uh, you know, a fraudulent transfer or something, there would, of course, be a 550B good faith and for value defense. But again, I don't, I don't think that you can get there. That um, No court has found that that is the basis for these types of claims. And so uh, that being the case, I, I, there really aren't any bankruptcy-specific defenses to apply, uh, other than, uh, as Dylan had said, you could, you could try and... Uh, uh, bring a Stern v. Marshall type argument and, and get out of the bankruptcy court, which doesn't substantively uh, address the litigation, but may have strategic benefits. Okay. Thanks, Paul. Um, so let me uh, close perhaps by by asking uh, about uh, Jewel's impact on the market for hiring lateral partners, uh, particularly from firms that um, uh, may be failing, not not failing so much um, in a in, um, in a bankruptcy sense yet, but uh, but some partners um, defecting and and some firm losses, um, which may suggest that it may be a failing firm down the road. What's what's the impact on hiring lateral partners from such firms? Well, uh, Sam, I know it's something that. Management is beginning to consider more carefully. Um, I don't think it's it has prevented uh, partners from moving, but it's certainly uh, on the radar screen for for the people that make those decisions and in, in bringing a new partner in as a lateral. And um, it's just one of the many uh, factors that will go into uh, you know both whether to uh, hire that partner and and what his compensation may or may not be. And and there may be some. Um, you know, ways to address uh, in, in their employment agreements whether uh, what happens when and if uh, uh, there's an unfinished business claim made against the firm. Yeah, I suppose you could add some sort of an indemnification type provision in an employment agreement. Uh, um, but again, it, it, it's, a, it, it's just one of many uh, factors that I'm sure law firms must considering and consider in making their hiring decisions and. Uh, and, uh, it, it, you know, if the book of business of the partners is substantial enough to, uh, to justify taking on that risk, I'm sure, uh, you know, that there are plenty of firms, particularly in this marketplace, that are, that are, that are happy to do so. Well, we'll watch um, further uh, case developments uh, to see if more light is shed on how these issues might be, uh, might be resolved. Well, Dylan and Paul, that's the time we have for today. I thank you both for sharing your insights with us on what's a very complicated issue. I'm sure you'd both agree. Yes, thanks. It was fun. Thanks, Sam. And we thank our audience for listening. There are more than 100 ABI podcasts online 
and you can find them at news.abi.org slash podcast. Until next time, this is Sam Giordano saying good day.